bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. This is Britta Wedling, editor-in-chief of Bits and Pretzels, and you're listening to a new episode of our podcast. For this week's show, we are talking to two top venture capitalists who are joining us from different sides of the world. Sarah Cannon, partner at Index Ventures, is located in New York. Sarah is the former policy advisor on the National Economic Council at the White House during the Obama administration. Before Index, she worked at Google's parent company Alphabet's investment arm Capital G. And our second guest is Martin Mikden, an Index partner based in London. He joined Index 10 years ago to help extend their business in Europe. He has worked with founders from the likes of Deliveroo, Revolut, Personio and Bird. Index is obviously one of the most active international VC firms with over 10 billion euro under current management. The fund oversees a portfolio of 160 US and European companies and has worked with some of the biggest startups in tech. Among them, Dropbox, Skype and Slack, just to name a few. Index Roots are a Swiss bond trading that was founded in the mid-70s. Today, it has dual headquarters in San Francisco and London and focuses on investing in tech companies in fields ranging from e-commerce to fintech and AI. Consequently, today's guests Sarah Cannon and Martin Mickinen bring a lot of expertise in helping startups all over the world to grow and expand. And in this show, they are sharing insights ranging from how to maintain a unifying culture in international teams to navigating different regulatory frameworks to why the rules of the startup game are fundamentally changing on both sides of the Atlantic. I think the main thing that's that's changed and that, that's been a radical change is really both the, the the quantity and the quality of the of the homegrown talent. Um, you know, I think if, if when you think about moving to the U.S., the first aspect is really about building the product, and and today, you know, engineering is typically of of similar, if not higher, quality in Europe. You know, in, in fact, you actually, you know, according to Stack Overflow, there are more developers now in Europe than there are in the U.S. So you don't need to to go to the U.S. to to find great engineering talent. And you don't need to to go to the U.S. to find necessarily, you know, experienced uh, execs who have seen large-scale companies. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Martin. Thank you so much for coming on our Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you for having us. We're very happy to be here. So this is something exciting uh, right now. Uh, it's a double feature, obviously, of this Bits and Presses podcast. Sarah, you are joining us live from New York. And Martin, you are coming to us live from London. Uh, you are both partners at Index Venture, which is one of the biggest venture capital firms that invested in companies such as Deliveroo, Dropbox, Skype, Stack, and Trello, just uh, to name a few. Many of them started as European startups and expanded to the US market. And that's also true for Index Venture itself which was one of the few European-born VC firms that successfully expanded uh, to the U.S. And for a long time, the U.S. and specifically Silicon Valley was kind of the place to be for founders. I spent some time there. I worked there five years covering technology uh, out of California. So I got a pretty good taste of what was happening there. But and it was this classic attitude of having an idea as a founder and then pack your bags, go to the yes. Uh, but your firm just recently published a study that shows that actually now you can 
win as a startup uh, in the US remotely by growing into Europe first. And that's obviously something that's very exciting for us and for our founders and for the startups in our audience. So let's kick this off. What has changed in the European startup ecosystem, though, that, that we see that development that I just described? And what does it mean for founders, uh, Sarah? One of the most kind of, I think, dramatic changes has been, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, the usual approach would have been for a startup in Europe to kind of stay there, maybe raise money in their kind of preliminary rounds, but then very quickly migrate to the U.S. and move the entire kind of organization to the U.S. because that's where a right. lot of the funding was, where a lot of the talent was. You know, that's true for, especially for B2B companies uh, like Zendesk. So that mm. was kind of the model, you know, 20 four years ago when Index started um, in back, back in Geneva, as you said, those were our origins. But today, it's very, very different. Um, the ecosystem in Europe has evolved significantly. Um, and a lot of U.S. investors are becoming very, very active in Europe. Um, and I think, you know, part of, so the investors have moved. And then also there have been, you know, I'm an economist by training. I think a lot about signaling value. There have been a lot of great kind of large companies that have been successful in Europe. Obviously the Spotify's and the audience who are at 50 billion, you know, dollar market cap. Right. So a lot of people say, oh, well, in fact, I can build a business kind of vertically integrated all the way in Europe. And it's not necessarily reliant on, on the U.S. So I would say that's the major, major change. Right. Um, and, you know, coming to you, uh, Martin, I obviously looked in, in into your study and startups are actually delaying their move uh, to the US. Uh, and some number crunching here between 2008 and 2014, two thirds moved their Series A funding uh, before uh, their Series A funding rounds. But between 2015 and 2019, that number had decreased uh, to a third. Uh, what do you see from your perspective as somebody who has worked in the European uh, ecosystem? Uh, for a long time um, uh, with index. Uh, what are the major things that changed from your perspective? I think the main thing that's that's changed and that, that's been a radical change is really both the, the the quantity and the quality of the of the homegrown talent. Um, you know, I think if, if when you think about moving to the US, the first aspect is really about building the product. And, and today, you know, engineering is typically of, of similar, if not higher quality in Europe. You know, in, in fact, you're actually, you know, according to Stack Overflow, there are more developers now in Europe than there are in the US. So you don't need to, to go to the US to, to find great engineering talent. And you don't need to, to go to the US to find necessarily, you know, experienced uh, execs who have seen large-scale companies because, you know, as, as Sarah mentioned, we now do have large-scale companies in Europe, um, you know, namely companies like, like Adyen and, and, um, and, and Spotify. Right. Um, so I think that, that that's been, that's been a, a massive, uh, a massive change. You know, obviously the U S is still a very important market and that's obviously why we wrote, wrote this book and why we researched more than 300 companies and, and studied how, they did it, how they did expand to the US. And, and one of the reasons why it's so important is that it, it's, a, it's a great market to sell European-built products, especially, obviously, if you're uh, a software company. Uh, but not only, you know, if you're a gaming company and many other categories, it, it, it can make sense. And the US you know, may turn out to be your largest market. And what we right. found as well is that, especially in the software world, Uh, companies and you know tended to ha have a lot more sales and marketing employees in the US than than even in Europe. 
And there are two, two big reasons for that. Or actually, you know, two aspects of the same reason, which is that European corporates, and that's a bit of a call to arm that is in the book as well. European corporates tend to spend a lot less in, in, in tech and software than the, their US counterparts. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. we, we measure about 75% less. And, and same thing for, for European governments, uh, which hasn't been as, as active in, in, in actually buying. Pro- We're not asking, we don't want grants. We want governments right. to buy products and take risk on homegrown, homegrown European software. Right. You mentioned Spotify and Adyen, which are obviously two of the companies that are like the poster child for, you know, the big European companies. If you wanted to nail down, let's say, two or three learnings for our audience, what do you think are like the key learnings um, from these companies? Well, I don't know if it's for these companies, in, you know, in particular, but I would say the three main things that I've that I've seen, and and this is going to be quite high level, and I, I let Sarah maybe give give more specifics. But in, in in my experience, there are three things that that really matter. The first one is really, you know, it sounds obvious, but it's it's either solve a real pain point, or go after something that is a profound human aspiration. Um, and I think, you know, you really have to start, it has to start from the user. And I think that's something that's critical. The second mm-hmm. thing I, w- I would say is you have to find something that you as an entrepreneur obsess over. And I, I'm not saying it's something you're passionate about. You know, passion is, is a different thing. I'm thinking it's something that you can't let go of and that you think about day and, and night uh, because that's what building mm. a, such a large company requires. And the last thing I would say is it's it's supposed to be hard, and and actually the better the company will do, the harder it will get. You know, the faster you grow, the more the you know the, the more difficult it is to hire and 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 maintain culture. And and every single company will go through the kind of the hype cycle and will go through the through of despair. And, and people will doubt you, will doubt your business, and will think your business model doesn't work. And you have to be able to to keep going. Sarah, when you look at these companies, obviously Spotify is famous for its special tribe culture. Adyen is famous for many things. Uh, we had the founder of Adyen at our Bits and Pretzels Networking Week, and we talked a lot about uh, the, the corporate culture, also the way the company is hiring. There are 40% engineers in that company. So, so, so talk about what you know specifically made these two companies, European-based, European-headquartered still, uh, so successful and, you know, good examples for this development that you kind of nailed down in in your book or in your study? Yeah, I would say that the essential part of culture is having a very strong foundation before you export it. So again, I'm back to my right. analogies, but you have to have a solid culture that starts where you are built uh, before you can export that effectively. I was actually very fortunate to spend time in the ADN office in New York City and with their team um, as they, you know, have expanded to the United States. But it represents, I mean, even culturally feels similar um, to their outposts in Europe. And the same is true true of Spotify and their team. So I do, you know, we do find that, you know, there's many models of kind of when you expand to the United States. And, and people always say there's no such thing is too early. A lot of people of the founders we uh, surveyed said, you know, it was they often went too late. Um, so better mm-hmm. to be kind of prepared. But I think the critical thing with culture is just having something that is sturdy um, that before you export it into another 
into another market. Right. That's interesting. So, so talk a little bit about, I mean, Sarah, you sitting in New York uh, in your office, um, Martin, you, you're obviously European based. So talk about how you guys work together. I mean, not specifically right now in, in the crisis, but how you help companies navigate their path from Europe coming over to the US and how your work kind of changed to the development that you describe in your research. So I am in New York at the moment, but I'm normally based in San Francisco. Um, and as we mentioned, Martin is in London. So Index is kind of dual headquartered between San Francisco and London. So we're able to work with kind of companies on on both sides of the Atlantic, which I find you know quite ne- unique. So I'll give I'll give an example. Um, and Martin, maybe you can give the reciprocal example. But I'm I'm very fortunate to work with a company called Notion that we invested in earlier this year. Um, and you know, a lot of they are expanding into Europe. And actually, one of the interesting trends um, that we're noticing even for US-based companies uh, is that a large share of their users obviously are in Europe. So historically, it tended to be around 30%. And that's been the case for the Slacks and Dropboxes of the world. But now we're noticing that even a larger share of users at end revenue tend to be outside um, of the US. And that's true. So companies are just becoming more global by nature. And so mm-hmm. when a company like Notion is looking to set up an office in Europe, um, I'm able to work with my colleagues like Martel and others to say, you know, who's the best talent that we could help Notion hire to really build out their operations in Europe. And one of the things we actually found in our study was that the average um, person who kind of a U.S. startup will hire in Europe has kind of 13 years of experience. Um, so I, I, we wanted to highlight, you know, the book focuses on companies expanding from Europe to the U.S., but the same is true, obviously, in the reciprocal direction and, and kind of Martin and I are working with people kind of on both sides. So I'll, I'll let him talk about the other direction. Yeah, it's a, you know what's what's interesting is is as as you pointed out, um, Britta, we we've gone through this journey ourselves at, at Index, and 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 we've we've you know where we've been distributed for for a long time, and it's been it's been hard work. You know, we, it's been uh, almost ten years now that that we have an office in in San Francisco, and there's eight hours you know time difference, and we've had to learn to turn something that is a challenge into 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 an advantage. In terms of how we how we communicate and, and we have to over communicate to obviously compensate for for the gap, how we make decisions together, mm. and and we we've had to find a lot of um, uh, a lot of ways right. to, to work to, to make it work, um, and and one of the way you know, to, to Sarah's point is is working on specific projects, and in our you know in our case very often those specific projects can be, you know, our companies. Um, and which means looking at businesses that maybe, you know, in Europe or in the US, but have a strong uh, component, uh, global component and working, you know, t- together on, on helping them. You know, one such company is a company called Spendesk, for example, which is a French company, but, you know, has been spending a lot of time working on the US expansion. And on, on in that case, we've had a bit of a, of a duo of a European partner and a U.S. partner working very closely together to help them map the U.S. market, meet their counterpart, kind of organize a bit of a U.S. tour to meet with all of the, the critical partners right. for them and potential customers. Um, and and, and that's, how, that's how you make it work. Interesting. When you look at, and I want to talk with you also about the broader picture, you know, the investor landscape, the VC landscape, and, you know, how things are changing there, not 
only because of COVID, obviously. For example, in the VC landscape, many investors have transformed from solo practitioners focused uh, just on one stage uh, and, and one single uh, area to covering all startups in all uh, geopolitical areas, in all industry within just basically a handful of, of years. Um, and Index obviously managed to navigate that change uh, specifically, sophisticatedly. I wasn't at the firm at the time, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak about it. I joined Index two and a half years ago. And as Martin mentioned, we've been in the U.S. for, for 10 years. But I think some of the critical elements was having people who had been at the firm kind of drive that expansion. So our partner, Danny Reimer, had been with Index in London for many years and kind of helped build out the, the business there. And he moved uh, to the United States, joined by Mike Volpe, another partner of ours, um, to build out the San Francisco office. So I think it's important to have people who had been at the firm, had spent time in London with the partnership to be the ones to drive that migration to, to the other side of the world. Again, kind of exporting that DNA, mm -hmm. but also, as Martel said, having those personal relationships. I mean, it's hard to say in these times, but I think the reality is there's no substitute mm. for spending time together. I mean, as a partnership, we are very intent on getting together, you know, at least quarterly um, and real spending, spending real time together um, because investment conversations should be tough. Martin should be asking me, you know, difficult questions that, that make me uncomfortable and that we disagree with so we can get to the right decision. But that's really based on, you know, high quality human relationships. Um, and so I think, you know, I actually worked at Google's growth equity fund uh, before joining Index and did a lot of right. research. I helped open an India office for them, which I loved, but, you know, did a lot of research into why has <laughs> geographic expansion failed. And, you know, if you do a data-driven analysis, it will tell you um, that many, many firms end up kind of spinning out for a number of reasons and that it's very, very hard to do multiple geographies and it often doesn't persist um, because the kind of Interesting. The, the second office ends up saying, well, wait, why am I still paying taxes equivalently to the head office? I've built a brand for myself in this, in this new market and I don't need the mothership anymore. And so I think, you know, that that's what, again, my, my research told me. And I think so at Index, we're very focused on maintaining one partnership across the geographies. And I, we benefit a lot by looking at trends on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's something that we, we hold near and dear and, and, but it's, as Martin said, it's not, it's not easy. I have a lot of five and 6 a.m. mornings, uh, for the deals that Martin has insisted <laughs> yeah. on winning. The only two things I'd, I'd love, uh, you know, I'd like to add, or one thing is, is culture. You know, I think, you know, it's a word that gets branded around a lot, but, but I think it, it is really, really important. And it is something that we have spent a lot of time at Index honing and, and sharing. And, you know, so we've defined five core values. And the first one is, is work as one. And it, it refers especially to the US-Europe uh, angle. And it's it's something that's you know has been mm -hmm. incorporated in the way we appraise people. You know, it is not some just just a word, a nice word out there. It is something that you need to demonstrate if you you know if you want to do well at index and stay for the long time. Is you need to work as one team across across geography. And and the second remark I would make is mm -hmm. I think you know this this lockdown uh, in a way has made it somewhat easier. Um, because, you know, when you have two offices and two rooms, you tend to have a bit of a, you know, us and, and them kind of dynamic that happens. You know, there are two groups, you know, with, with one screen in between and it's, and it tends to be, there is kind of consensus in, in a single group and, and it tends to create 
um, you know, just two different dynamics within room. Why now that everyone is logging, you know, just just for Zoom and becomes just an, an individual participant, mm-hmm. there's a lot more, you know, the, the fact that you are in the US or in Europe, then, you know, not, no one even really knows where you are. It doesn't really matter at all. There's not, you know, these kind of two groups um, and it's a lot more distributed. And, and I think it, it makes us in some, you know, in some interesting way, it, it makes mm-hmm. us better and work better as a group in some ways. Interesting. What I've heard talking to many companies in the ecosystem is that, and it's this, you know, it's to something that you said, Sarah, and you, uh, uh, Martin, uh, said as well, is that the importance of culture. And what I hear from many companies who have like two headquarters, one in in Europe and, you know, one in the US, for example, is that it's really, really hard to maintain culture, to really work together um, across the Atlantic. You know, from your perspective as a VC company that went through this process, what is like the important thing for establishing a two-headquarter company, be it in, in the VC sector or, you know, any like regular startup? How do I build a relationship across the Atlantic that's working and that's useful to 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 expand on. We think we, we've touched on, on on some of some of the things. Um, you know, making it part, you know, very important part of of culture, and you know, and, and, and it being translated in how people get get appraised. I think is is extremely important. I think working on on concrete projects together is is critical. But on, on the flip side, there is also a bit of a subsidiarity principle, which is you should also be making decisions where they are more appropriate. I mean, you know, and there could be, you know, you can create antagonism by, you know, making it too centralized, for mm. example, and make, in you know, having this, you know, if every single legal decision has to be made globally, then, you know, you, you slow down to a crawl and, and people get unhappy and get frustrated. So, you know, on the flip side, one of the things that we do, for example, at Index is that we, we make yeah. for, for, you know, checks below a certain threshold. You don't need to have a global investment committee. You can make decisions locally. So it's all about finding the right level to make the right decisions while finding ways, you know, where, where it is actually value, you know, creative to be working together as, as one group. I mean, the most common question we get, I think, is is where to set up shop um, in either side uh, of, you know, on the Atlantic. And one of the right. things from the study that was surprising on the U.S. side, I have to say, is that kind of 44 percent of European companies expanding to the U.S. chose chose New York as their as their hub. Uh, and San Francisco was, I think, 28 mm. percent. So, you know, I, I fear that my my hometown, I'm originally mm. from San Francisco, is becoming less popular. But I'm happy to know there are multiple uh, hubs in the U.S. that are that are attractive for European companies. Is this because of the t- time difference that's easier to work with a New York-based company when you're in Europe? I'd say absolutely time zone is one advantage mm. for sure. Um, I'd say the second is also just travel distance, um, that it's mm. much easier to get back and forth. Um, you know, and, and one of the questions that we, uh, again, looked into at the survey is like, does the founder need to move to the U.S.? And, you know, right. there are many different models of how companies can kind of be both in Europe and the United States. And I think historically we used to advise companies that, of course, the founder did need to move. And, and now we find that's not necessarily the case. Um, but we do say, you know, spending time frequently in both geographies is important. And so New York is is easier. Um, the only other reason I'd say it really depends on kind of what 
your what market you're in. Um, so New York is obviously a hub for a lot of kind of finance, healthcare, yeah. media companies. So if that's the world that you're in, um, it might make a lot more sense to be in New York. Whereas you know technology and more kind of software based companies, again, a lot of those are still still out in the Bay Area. And there are a number of other geographies that European founders are choosing. I'd say LA is the only other one. Right. A lot of signal uh, outside of Boston, which has you know traditionally been of interest. Again, more on the healthcare side, right? And you know, and then you have other destinations such as Austin or Dallas, uh, where you also Houston for aerospace, uh, where you also see like interesting you know technology hubs, um, you know, evolving uh, in this regard. So it becomes like a more diverse ecosystem uh, for founders in in the US, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so coming, you know, to the current situation, and obviously, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, COVID and the situation uh, for founders and for U.S. investors as well. And um, you were able, despite obviously the current crisis, to raise two billion uh, in new funds in April, basically in the middle of the lockdown. Um, how did you perceive the investment landscape during this time, and how did you adjust your your investment strategies to the situation? If so. Yeah, we were we were fortunate, as as you mentioned, to uh, raise uh, right before the lockdown. Um, and and but the reality is, it's it's you know those those have been relationships that we've had for for decades in in, in many cases. Um, so there are people we've been working with for a very long time, and who, who trust us and who who we trust. Um, and and I think that that's that's in, the, in, in times like this. This is when the the length of relationship yeah. and, and the trust really really matters. Um, in terms of activity, what's interesting, like we we looked at, we actually looked at the data recently, and it turns out that that the first nine months of the of the years, we invested in more companies and more capital than mm -hmm. in the first nine months of 2019. So clearly, the data seems to indicate that we haven't missed a bit and we've been investing in companies across Europe, across the US at both early and growth stage. And in many mm. cases, without meeting the teams, you know, which was one of the big questions at the beginning of lockdown, which was, are you going to be able to do due diligence remotely? Are you going to be able to be comfortable investing in teams you've never met in person? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. So talking about, you know, the amount of investments and number of investments that you did. So are you specifically clever at index or did you benefit from any trend or any investment strategy that you kind of uh, started? Uh, so, so explain these numbers. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. I, you know, I'd always like to say it was our, our special genius, but I'll say there might be some, some macro founders, uh, factors that had something to do with it. So I would say, you know, the real difference is when you have a crisis, um, you know, a shock of this variety, a lot of people decided to raise funding that, that I think uh -huh. would have waited a longer period of time. So Uh, you know, Notion is a company that I, I, you know, really was, had wanted to invest in for years, frankly. Um, and I did get a call at the first week of the lockdown saying, okay, Sarah, you know, relenting to my insistence. And I think it really was, look, we want to give our team the comfort and our customers, the comfort that we will, we will be around. Um, and so I think there were a lot of people who pulled forward their fundraises that they had planned. Um, so that mm -hmm. explains a bit of the acceleration in activity. 
I'd say the second factor is more of a practical one, which is you have a bunch of investors um, sitting at home. And, you know, Martel and I love our jobs. So we're thrilled to get on a Zoom at 8 p.m. and and meet founders. So I think you know, it, it just logistically made it easier to get, you know, 10 partners in, in two geographies uh, on on the Zoom to make to make investment decisions. And I'd say the third, which is the most exciting to me, is that, again, with the shock, there are you know, investments, companies that are become exciting yeah. that weren't previously, right? Like I've been interested in video for a very long time. We talked about mm-hmm. it at a, as a firm at our annual meeting in April. I mean, we'd been but years ago. So, but what had happened is very few people were using, I mean, no, people were using Zoom obviously before COVID, but things like you know, telehealth where Martin has made investments in Europe. It really has behavior change has come. Um, and video is an obvious example. And so we're seeing that being integrated into a lot of pro- you know, products from education to productivity to healthcare. So those investment opportunities are more exciting because people have gotten over the hump of, you know, using video right. for a lot, a lot of different things. That's one example, like grocery delivery, uh, you know, Martin is obviously an investor in, in Deliveroo on the delivery side, but, you know, there's been a lot of trends that, you know, some people were obviously doing before, but a lot more people, again, have right. changed their behavior. And I think as an investor, one of the interesting questions um, is how much of these behaviors sustain um, after after the you know pandemic, and we can all discuss hmm. how long we think that's going to be. But you know, you're definitely seeing behavior change. And then the question becomes, how permanent is that? So I think yeah. it's very interesting times to be doing to be doing this job and very founder fr- founder friendly if you're trying to to raise capital. And now we are friendly to us because it's time to move to the second part of our podcast, which is our Bavarian beer garden break. Uh, because even right now during Corona, uh, when there's no Oktoberfest in Munich, uh, since we are a Bavarian uh, conference and a Bavarian conference podcast, we want to bring at least some of the Oktoberfest spirit into this show, even virtually. And this is the part where we enjoy a zip of gold good old Bavarian beer, even virtually. So, Sarah and Martin, what are we drinking to? We are drinking to, um, oh, wow, so many things. Uh, continued expansion of many European companies to the United States. Martin? It, w- it would have to be personal for me. You know, I, I got married uh, three weeks ago, so I guess that's, that's, worth a, that's worth a cheer. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. If you could have a beer at Oktoberfest with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? Starting with Martin. I one of a big. I'm a big fan of a, of a French writer called uh, Michel Welbeck, and um, and he's 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 uh, he, oh. he's a big drinker. <laughs> so I think it would be really yes. really interesting. and smoker and smoker, and smoker. exactly. Yeah. So I think in terms of drinking, I can't really think of anyone as as good to drink with. <laughs> Sarah, who who do you want to have a drink uh, with at Oktoberfest? 
Easy one. Christine Lagarde. Um, Marshall has competition for my favorite French person, but I've always greatly, greatly admired her and got to work with her at the IMF. The challenge is she doesn't drink. Um, so I, I hesitate, but you know what? Wrong pick, wrong pick. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll drink with her. Any, I'll drink for both of us. Okay. <laughs> and Michelle will drink for all of us. Yeah, that's true. You know what? Actually, I wrote my master thesis about his books, which is a funny coincidence, Martin, really. Uh, no way. Really, yes. Uh, I no, had to read through all, yes, <laughs> through all his books and his essays. And, you know, that was quite interesting. Um, yeah, uh, that's one of the things that I... That I did. So, you know, I wanted to, you know, take a moment to talk about your background and both of your resumes are very impressive, sir. You worked uh, as a policy advisor on the National Economic Council at the White House during the Obama administration. What is one thing that you took from that time that you still benefit from uh, in, in your everyday life today? The thing that I benefited from, I think, the most was being able to synthesized from a lot of macro information. So my job at the time was Rahm Emanuel, who was President Obama's chief of staff, would say, Sarah, figure out what we should do on solar credits. Um, and I would quickly have to synthesize research from economists, what Germany and Spain had done, and, and come up with ideas. So I'd say the, the biggest lesson for me personally was being able to quickly try to understand kind of the best ideas out there um, and then develop policies that hopefully would have an impact at scale. And hopefully I can bring some of that uh, to the founders I work with who are making really important decisions on a daily basis. Uh, and, and, you know, I know that Americans don't like to talk about politics, but obviously, since we are so close to the elections, uh, how do you look at the current uh, political landscape in, in the U.S.? Uh, my fingers and toes are crossed. When you asked me what we should cheer <laughs> to, my first reaction was going to be the election. I was like, Sarah, don't talk politics. Um, <laughs> so I will say 538 is a great blog for real-time polling, which I may or may not be checking uh, moment, you know, every every other minute. Um, but I'd say we, we are standing by, and I hope most of all we have a, uh, a fair and clear election in November. Okay. Uh, Martin, you obviously uh, have been with Index Venture for almost over a decade now, and you have accompanied some startups like Deliveroo uh, from the very beginning. Uh, what has been your most important learnings and valuable learnings over the years? And what was the biggest change that you saw during this time uh, in the investment landscape? Yeah, it's actually over a decade now. It's uh, it's it's you know soon coming to to eleven years. So it's m most of my my career. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be in in venture and at, at index working working closely with entrepreneurs. Um, I'd say the the main change is you know I guess I, I would you know index wouldn't hire me today. Uh, I think the the the, the realities like the, the caliber of of people. Who are interested in, in venture, either investing or starting companies, have has changed um, massively. Um, you know, the the, the the caliber and the quantity of talent is is has increased many, many, many fold. I think you know now in Europe, when you when you graduate from from uh, a great school or not, actually, you know, but. but Starting a company and being an entrepreneur has become the norm, mm -hmm. which totally wasn't the case when I when I graduated. And, and and you know when I when I um, when I graduated, people would go to to consulting and, and to banks. And and when I joined Index, people had no idea what venture was about, and and they thought, you know, what the hell is this thing? Um, and it was, you know, I wouldn't say it was risky. Obviously, 
you know, never as risky as, as starting a company, but it definitely wasn't mainstream. Um, while obviously, you know, today I, I receive a, a couple of applications a day to, to join you know, the, the venture world. Um, and I think that's, that's something that's, that's the most important thing. Obviously, capital has changed a lot, but I think what is more important is the culture has changed. And entrepreneurship has become something common and, and something popular in, in Europe. Yeah, and I this is something that I find fascinated uh, as well. You know, to see like so many entrepreneurs staying in Europe, um, you know, building companies, uh, companies right there. And I think you know one of the challenges, and I think we, we talked a little bit about that earlier. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, Martin, about that. You know, since you're originally from France, and you know, but you live in in London now for most of the time. What is your advice for founders for adapting to a new business culture? Um, Maybe also, Sarah, you can also um, elaborate on, on that because I think that's like kind of the core question if you want to expand uh, to to another country. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned that during your time at Alphabet that you opened an office there. So, so, so maybe you know, let's let's talk, let's chat a little bit about that, uh, Martin. If you wanted to start, what's like important to you know for founders to adapt? It is something close to my heart, indeed, and, and something that I spend a lot of time on, especially. When you invest in France, it's, it's, I don't only invest in France, but I invest quite a bit in France. And it's pretty remarkable that still to this day, there are a lot of companies where French is the main language. Uh, that's the way they, they talk internally. You know, it's mostly French people and French speakers in the, in the early team. You know, the French ecosystem is still fairly French. Uh, there are very few international people. And so, you know, one of the first things I have to ask is, is making sure that every single communication internally and obviously externally, if your friend, if your market is French, you would have to speak French, but at mm. least internally is in English so that at least you, know, you are, you have a bit of a lingua franca so that, you know, when you are hiring talent, you're not limited to French speakers. And then when you are thinking about, you know, expanding internationally, at least you don't start at a disadvantage. Um, and it applies to many, many things when you speak to the press, when you speak right. to investors. So it's, it's, you know, it's very basic, but surprisingly enough, we're not there yet. Uh, in, in France, at least, and in many other countries, obviously Germany and the Nordics, the Netherlands are well ahead. But in, in France and, and other countries, in Southern Europe especially, it's still not a given that we should start by, 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 by you know, speaking English. Right. So that's a pretty basic advice, but that's, you know, that's, that's advice number one. Sarah, I wanted you to join this uh, discussion. You know, talk about your learnings from adapting uh, to a new business culture, maybe from your time right now at Index or in your former position uh, at Alphabet's investment firm, Capital G. What's important when you wanted to adapt to a new culture? I think so much of it is is listening and asking questions. I mean, I think that's true in any new environment, business, personal, cultural, is, is to be observant and then to ask when things don't make sense to you. And actually, I think you can add a lot of value as a new entrant with a different perspective when you ask about things. But there's a lot of a lot that is unspoken in, in the culture of any firm or any country. And so to not be shy to, to ask questions. Um, right. 
obviously we have a lot of entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, students who are trying to figure out their way. And, and Martin, you mentioned that many people right now, instead of going to a bank or to a consultancy, wanted to become entrepreneurs. What areas do you see in, you know, in terms of technology, in terms of businesses, in terms of future sectors that are on the rise and that you are excited to see uh, and develop further uh, as an investor? Yeah, one area we've been we've been looking at um, a lot recently is around B two B marketplaces, um, and you know it, it may it may not sound you know, the most sexy, but but you know to my earlier point about being obsessive, I think those are fascinating uh, industries that are still and by and large being run on in many cases on on phone calls and emails. Um, so to give you to give you an example, we, we invested during lockdown lockdown in the team we had we hadn't well, actually I hadn't met in person um, based in Berlin called Cargo One, which is building a global distribution system for air cargo, um, which is basically you know the capacities that you have in in, in planes to to mm. carry um, uh, goods instead of, of passengers, and obviously on the passenger side you've got Amadeus and you've got you know Skyscanner and Kayak on on the front end. And you can all book in one click. But surprisingly enough, on the B2B side, it's still entirely manual. Um, you know, you need to send an email or a fax or, or call when you're afraid for water and you want to book capacity with these airlines. And so the, the, you know, there's massive amount of, of, of waste and, and inefficiencies um, that, that will for sure be, be fully digitalized in, in the coming, coming years and coming decades. And so, you know, I think on, you know, on, on the B2B side, especially, there are these massive sectors uh, which are harder to penetrate, you know, historically because you have a few participants, uh, you need to know the industry fairly well. There wasn't a lot of incentives to really uh, adopt fully digital solutions because you had, you know, a few limited cozy relationships that uh, where, it was, where it worked really well. But I think you know that, that that's going to change because obviously you know at the end of the day those are individual users and they are used to you know booking things and mm. on, online in one click and, and using modern technology and there's no way they would they wouldn't want to do that in their day to day work and on the other hand the the technology itself whether it's kind of API or, or the payment infrastructure have now become mature enough that you can really build a seamless experience even for more complex. And, and bigger transactions at times. And I think that's going to, you know, we're at the very, very beginning of that journey. Um, and and that, that's going to be a very big trend. Interesting. Sarah, what, what areas do you think are interesting, you know, for you as an investor and also, you know, looking into our audience for entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs to, you know, divide and conquer next? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm particularly excited about the future of communication. And I think we've seen a lot of changes, both in terms of audio and video utilization for all kinds of communications. We're fortunate to be investors in, in Discord, um, which originally started as messaging in the gaming community um, and has now spread kind of more, more broadly. But I think there is a whole set of opportunities for, we're all multimedia. You're We're using audio and video. We're finding communities of people online. So I'm particularly interested um, on the consumer side of 
you know, are there new opportunities for people to maybe even challenge some of the incumbents like like Facebook? Uh, I think the regulatory changes that we alluded to um, around competition, particularly in the U.S., will be interesting uh, around Mm -hmm. the election that may create opportunities for a new set of consumer businesses that hadn't existed previously. So I'd say that that's an area that I'm particularly interested in. There was a lot of, you know, the investors always used to say, um, you know, venture capitalists used to say, well, there won't be a new kind of consumer platform until there's really a platform shift. You know, it will have to be in VR or in AR. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'll take the other side of that any day and say, you know, we have video, audio, and I think those create a lot of opportunities for talented entrepreneurs to create uh, new, new large scale businesses that, that didn't exist. So I, I think it's very nascent, but I'm interesting. So, so do you expect that, you know, there will be like big antitrust uh, decisions uh, moving forward? I mean, every, I mean, everybody's expecting it. It's, you know, pretty obvious. But do you think, I mean, after we talked about this for years, <laughs> uh, really, um, do you think it's happening right now? Yeah, so I should say another lesson. You asked me lessons learned in Washington is to never try to predict uh, the policy. Okay. <laughs> no, but I will definitely, I will say in the U.S., you know, in Europe, it's been a discussion for for many, many years. In the U.S., it really hasn't been um, until more recently, I would say, uh, the last kind of two or three years. And certainly, right. you know, the House of Representatives is actually putting forward proposals. So, I mean, it will absolutely, uh, it is top of mind in, in Washington these days. I know the a lot of the candidates are, are thinking about what their kind of policies are, are going to be in this area. So I, I think mm-hmm. it very much depends you know, what happens in, in November, but I certainly expect this to be uh, a top policy area of, of debate. Coming to our toolbox right now, which is the part in our podcast where our guest shares three tools for founders and entrepreneurs, uh, you know, they find useful for our listeners. Um, and I think I would ask each of you to probably give one tool, one really important advice that you have for our audience today, starting uh, with Sarah. I'd say focus is the most important thing um, for both investors and founders. And so one thing that I do each week and encourage my founders to do the same is just to say, what are the three things that I'm trying to get done? And every Sunday night, I write them down in Notion to hold myself accountable, uh, to focus on the three things that you're going to get done. So you're proactive rather than reactive. It sounds simple, but in board meetings, I say the exact same thing. Like, what are the three things we're trying to do this quarter um, so that we can really be proactive rather than, than reactive to what comes at us? It's all about the team. You know, that's a big difference between repeat entrepreneurs and first-time founders is that repeat entrepreneurs know that they need to spend most of their time hiring and and growing the, the their team and, and, and making making the team happy and, and high performing. And that's the highest form of leverage they can find in running their business. Um, and one important aspect of that is obviously in terms of compensation. And when we speak about competition in startups, we speak about options. And, you know, as a tool for the toolbox, I would recommend every entrepreneur listening to this podcast to go onto the index website. And we've got a tool called Option Plan, which will help you design an option plan for your team, depending on the stage you're at, 
and and kind of your you know how aggressive you want to be and and how generous you are you are feeling. But we've been pushing really hard for people to give options to every single member of their team, especially in Europe, to be much more generous because that's that's critical for the success of the company and for the success of the ecosystem. Right. And we see, at least recently, some changes here in Germany where we have this debate about employee stock options, obviously, for, for a while now. And it looks as if something, um, and I think your company, as many other stakeholders, pushed very hard for, for you know, this. We, we I think, hopefully see uh, some changes in the ecosystem moving forward. Coming to the last part of our podcast, it's our either or game. And this is how it works. I give you two words and you have to choose one real quick and tell me in one short sentences why you've made that choice. And I would say one question for each of you, uh, starting with Martin. And the first one is obviously bits or pretzels. Pretzels. Because every time I go to the person you board, they have this delicious pretzel with, with butter on them. And I just love them. Speaking or listening, Sarah? Listening. You don't learn when uh, you're talking. Conquer a compromise for Martin. Compromise. I think it's, I think it's a, you know, I think we are, we are lucky enough that we are in an ecosystem where, the, the, you know, many people can, this is not a zero-sum game. Um, there are, there are, obviously, there are businesses where conquering is, is important when, you know, there's a winner takes most. But in day-to-day, -day, you know, operations and when you're negotiating, you know, in a deal, for example, I think it is it is more important to, to you know, focus on making sure everyone wins. Um, because at the end of the day, when you're creating value, which is what we're doing with, you know, with, with tech and entrepreneurship here, there is, you know, we're growing the pie. And so that's, you know, it's more important to get deals done quickly than, than to fight to, you know, to win everything. Sarah, chaos or order? Chaos. I think chaos is often required for, for creativity. Tradition or transition, Martin? Transition. Because I think that's where we are at the moment. Saving or spending for Sarah? Spending. Keynes is my favorite economist, and I think we're benefiting from stimulus, so I'll go with spending. Numbers or ideas? Ideas. Numbers or... You know, numbers are a commodity in many ways. Ideas that you can execute on are, are rare. Uh, and I think I have another one for Martin. Uh, tea or coffee? Because you obviously live in London right now. <laughs> and, you know, London has become a bit of a, of a, of a coffee capital as well, surprisingly enough. Um, so so I, will go for, I will go for coffee. For Sarah, dreamer or realist? Dreamer. No question. Uh, those are the people who create uh, new things that didn't exist before. For Martin, singing in the shower or in the car? I don't. I don't drive cars. I'm against cars. So in the shower. <laughs> okay. Sarah, follow or lead? Lead, because those are the people who drive change. All right, great. That was a lot of fun and also very interesting to talk to you guys. Thanks for coming uh, on the Bits Plus podcast today and for sharing all your knowledge uh, from, from your perspective. Thank you very much. Thanks, Britta. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Britta. Next time, I hope we can actually come to Oktoberfest. All right, that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us. 
and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode again. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening. See you next week. Bye.